0: Welcome to the Business of Psychology podcast, the show that helps you to reach more people, help more people and build the life you want to live by doing more than therapy. Today I'm talking to Hannah Abrahams. Hannah is an educational and child psychologist who's worked beyond the therapy room in both the public and private sector, starting out as a primary school teacher before training as an ed psych in 2005. She's been involved in projects that would seriously intimidate most of us including setting up a school and supporting the community after the tragedy of the Grenfell Tower, not to mention setting up and building her own private practice. Welcome to the podcast Hannah, there's so much that I want to ask you about and so much that we could talk about so let's start at the beginning. What inspired you to leave teaching and become an ed psych?
1: Gosh what a big question um, And what an introduction. It actually made me really emotional listening to that. Um, I think I always knew that I wanted to work with special needs children. And in my second year of teaching, it was really um, made concrete. There was a little boy that I had in my class who had been diagnosed very early on with autism. And um, we formed a really strong bond and a really good understanding of each other. And I think that absolutely cemented the fact that I knew that I wanted to go and work as an educational psychologist and um, kind of work in a more systemic way, supporting staff and families and working very collaboratively. Um, yeah, he's, he's, the picture of him in my mind is so clear. But I, I remember coming into the class one day and just going, yeah, I absolutely have to kind of follow this. So I think I had an idea from very early on. Um, I also did work experience when I was 16 in a school for children um, who were deaf and they taught me to sign really quickly. Obviously, I was not fluent, but I think for me, it's always been about communication and interestingly about communication with people who find it more difficult to communicate in the neurotypical way. Um, so I think from a really young age, I was really interested in building relationships and building bonds. And and I think that Ed Sykes have a, an incredible gift of being able to do that in all sorts of different settings. So I hope that answers your first question.
0: Yeah, it does. I mean, I was just thinking about how strong that motivation must have been. Like you've literally I can see and um, the audience can't, but I can and see like Hannah gets really animated when she's thinking about that boy. I'm thinking was that what got you through what must have been really difficult because training as a psychologist is hard especially as a second career
1: yeah um I think I had a real clear vision a very I was very lucky because I had a very clear vision right from the start and I I'd read psychology at university with a with a kind of view to I, I know I want to follow this but I also think that I wanted to work with children in the sense that at that age, I was probably quite naive and thinking, well, you can make a bigger difference with younger people. And, and I suppose it's probably maternal instincts and mothering instincts as well. That's kind of kick in. Um So I think that very much played a part. Training to be a psychologist is incredibly tough. I, you know, you will know too. It's, it's really, really tough. And I think there is, the difference of becoming an ed psych, because when I trained, you had to be a teacher. Um, and we had all these teachers who'd come in, who'd felt incredibly kind of, you know, confident and competent being in a classroom. And then when you're training to be a psychologist, you're questioning everything. And suddenly you feel like your skill base is zero and you're looking around for kind of validation the whole time. And suddenly it was, it was very kind of... um what's the word it was it, it there was a very uneven feel about walking into those schools when you knew you understood a school but suddenly you were coming in as the outsider and I think that was the part of the training as a psychologist that was was the really really tough bit is that suddenly you've just felt completely de-skilled um but actually we understood how schools worked and how the pressure that teachers were under and the pressure that families were under and the different systems in place. So I think that plays a massive kind of part in building, rebuilding your confidence when you're training. Um, I think it's it's interesting because I always question kind of, you know, when psychologists only train others and and the meaning behind that and what are their needs ultimately. Because, you know, being in the front line is a very different place to be.
0: Mm.
1: So that's quite, you know, it's political, but it's I it's I've always I've always noted it and noticed it and questioned it. But maybe that's because I'm not a lecturer. Yeah,
0: that's really interesting. So is that something that would ever appeal to you to do a bit of that? Yeah, absolutely. And
1: I've done more and more of it now since I've been in private practice Mm. than I did before when I was working kind of in the NHS and and the state system. Um, but it's not something that I feel incredibly confident at I'm I will I think that's something that I have to skill myself up with regards to kind of you know working as a psychologist and I think that's part and parcel of who we are often in our nature Mm. you know
0: yeah yeah I definitely agree with that I think when you were talking about what it was like to um, retrain as an ed psych I was thinking about um just over a year ago maybe 18 months ago I did a course in online therapy Right it made me feel like I knew nothing about therapy when you do something I'd been doing for a really long time but as soon as I was in that like learning environment again back in the role of a student I started questioning everything started thinking I was completely incompetent uh, yeah. felt totally de-skilled until I got like in the saddle and started seeing people online and I and was like, like oh here are all my skills and knowledge to help me <laughs> yeah, excellent it- it's funny, isn't it? I mean, I think we we kind of we ping pong between
1: kind of like a you know like a safe space to a oh my goodness me, how can I possibly know what I'm doing? I mean, I had a really interesting experience a few weeks ago when um, I've started going into more kind of work settings, so um, you know, working with lawyers or people who are in kind of more corporate settings. And the feeling of imposter syndrome as I walked into these beautiful buildings, kind of thinking, do I know what I'm talking about? Have I got a clue? And then watching people's eyes and knowing that actually I know what I'm talking about most of the time and I'm still learning so much, but actually they they gained and I gained from them as well and it's it's very much about perception isn't it and about kind of you know um there's another psychologist I know who always talks about kind of just remember what you can do and and it has to be kind of this constant little narrative in our heads doesn't it yeah so yeah it's about I mean- confidence
0: yeah and that feels like the model of growth to me like you have to go through that feeling of feeling totally de-skilled in order for your skills to come out and help you and to see how it all integrates and and turns you into the psychologist that you can be yeah and
1: and I think that that's part and parcel of being a good practitioner is to be reflective as much as you possibly can and be able to pull the positives as well as the bits that you know that you need to adapt and change and learn more about so I think in the worlds of kind of private practice, the gift that I've been given is that I've met incredible people and I've been kind of given the space to become much more creative than I could in other situations. So for example, when I was working at Grenfell, um, you know, we had to listen to the community. I was doing things like going into cooking sessions and learning how to make amazing tagines. I was sitting in sewing groups. I was, you know, I was making slime with, you know, 30 children whilst we were talking about setting up a memorial for the children, you know. And I wouldn't have had the capacity to do that in my old day job to the extent because I had to be literally in the streets with the community and building trust and that's a very different part of psychology that um, that I've learned about and that I've embraced and that has given me a heck of a lot really.
0: Yeah so I think that this is part of your story that people are going to be really fascinated about because I know um, when the tragedy happened I'd actually just recently given birth and although I wasn't living a million miles away actually I felt like I couldn't do anything i couldn't help but i did receive an email saying you know we're looking for psychologists skilled in trauma therapies um and i remember feeling very bad about the fact that it, it you know i was just breastfeeding around the clock it just wasn't yeah. going to be possible um but there was also another part of me that a bit like we were just saying was like how could i possibly help <laughs> couldn't couldn't figure it out so could you talk a bit about what that process was how you got involved and then the things that you were able to do to support that community
1: so um probably about Eight years ago, now I um, learned about an incredible charity called Grief Encounter, which basically works with um, bereaved families and children. And it's you know, I mean, I think probably others would have heard about CBUK and Winston's Wish, and Grief Encounter sits within that within that realm. But they are a slightly they're a smaller charity, um, and I went on an, I went on a kind of six month training with them. And it was incredible. And I worked with the, a lot of the children that they were working with. And I ran groups um, and I went on retreats with the families and I became very much a part of the charity in terms of kind of the support that I was offering as a psychologist. And when Grenfell happened, um, I mean, I, I live relatively close, but also the first school that I ever taught in is round the corner from Grenfell. So the little boy that I was talking about earlier is, you know, he grew up around there. Um, And there was something very much inside of me that kind of was, you know, lit in terms of, okay, I work in trauma, you know, I don't work in trauma every day, but if I have a team around me, we can do something here. We can do something tangible. And we're not going to go in and wave magic wands. And, you know, kind of, I I often hear and I often observe in crises in school that we kind of like suddenly have like 10 counsellors around on a Monday morning after there's been a tragedy on assassin. It's like, no, we're not doing that. Um, But I did meet with grief encounter and they said to me, Hannah, can, can you do it? And I wavered because the enormity of this situation is kind of beyond comprehension um but I agreed and in with a lot of trepidation and a lot of fear we went down there and we had connections with the other charities and I also had connections with the with the council as well and slowly but surely these meetings starting to happen about what can we do and how are we going to sort of make a positive mark you know in and just ultimately be there and there was a lot of watchful waiting that happened um and I built these kind of connections with um people who ran I don't know whether you would have heard of something called Grenfell United so it's the the a lot of the survivors kind of formed together to build this community and there were other communities that were kind of popping up and and I worked, I also built relationships with the heads and the deputy heads of some of the schools that were literally right in the vicinity. Um, and we, we, there was a lot of listening and there was a lot of watching and there was um, a lot of changes made along the way. So we could, you can't go in with a perfect plan. There isn't one. And there was, and still remains incredible mistrust so I think about six months of my work was about building trust. And that was about, that was being on the ground. So, you know, working with people who were going into the community centers, going into the children's centers, being with the staff, playing in the sand, you know, all of those things. And slowly but surely, all of these different groups kind of came together. Um, and we we built the trust in these families. Um, and they we knew when they, when they wanted to talk to us and when they didn't. Mm. And that changed on an hour by hour, day by day, week by week basis. Um, but eventually the, the Metropolitan Police kind of came to us and said, we want to do something because their need was so great as well. If you can imagine the level of trauma kind of, you can always kind of describe it as the ripples of, this, of the waves against the shore. Mm -hmm. Like it just, it kind of, you know, it just kept coming. And I think, you know, it's still, obviously it's still going, but at that point it was so tangible. Um, And the liaison officers were working directly with the families who were not, you know, living where they had been, obviously, or where they wanted to be. And ultimately what we did is the family started to say, well, we want to, we need a space to memorialise what's been going on we need we need the safe space so we had a couple of very private areas where we used to meet with the families um, twice a week and over the course of um the other six months excuse me we started to work very therapeutically with the children the parents kind of it was it was kind of like wavering in and out And it was very frightening for them because, you know, we were using big words, you know, death, you know, there was, there was death in the air. Um, But the children needed to use that language and we needed to help them to make sense of the utter confusion that they'd been thrown into. Um, And over a very slow, gentle course of time, we built kind of what we listened to them. We, We built this memorial with regards to how they wanted it to be. So, The climax was, is that ultimately the week before the very first um, year of Grenfell, we had every single family who'd been affected um, standing at the school, which is called Kensington Aldridge Academy, um, with the Metropolitan Police who had been working very closely with the families, with CAMS, with us with CBUK, with with everybody who'd been involved in this project. And we had the most beautiful memorial that was completely private. And the children were all engaged. They sang. We had incredible artwork that we'd done with the kids. Um, They'd written poems. They'd written letters to loved ones. Um, We'd released... um, They had to be special balloons, but they were special balloons from the top of the tower. That's what the kids wanted. Um, And none of it was filmed. It was so private that nobody knew that it was going on, but it was incredibly powerful um, Mm. and very beautiful. And I think one of the most powerful moments for me was that we'd had um, um, somebody sing the prayers, the memorial prayers at the bottom of the tower. And then the children understood there was complete, there was total silence, you know, and it was a, it was actually a beautiful day. And suddenly after the singing had finished, I suddenly heard these kind of like little squeaks and the kids had started to run into the school and they were playing hide and seek. And it was just a normal like game in the midst of the most horrific kind of, you know, kind of thought processes that were going through our, so many of our minds. And we, we set up a beautiful tea for them. So they all had tea. But from going from the kind of like utter despair to playing hide and seek
0: hmm.
1: kind of reminds you of children's ability to be resilient that there is still this, they, we and I think we had harboured the fact in them and with their parents that they still needed to be children because there was a lot of adult language going on that you don't want five and six-year-olds to be using. Um, there'd been a lot of soaking up of information. Um, I think probably the most horrible way I can describe it is that when somebody is in the depths of the most horrific grief, they kind of vomit their grief out. Yeah. So there'd been that going on a lot. But there was still this laughter and this play and this engagement and this community, and I think ultimately the biggest job that we did was to help this community sew and weave their connections together. And this will be this is on, this will be ongoing for years and years and years. And I anticipate that when the tower comes down, then the eruption of the depth of despair will be reawakened um, mm. and as the inquiry goes on. But I suppose in a nutshell, that's how I've been involved. Um, but it's, a lot of it has been about just allowing the conversation to happen.
0: There's just so much that is so powerful in that story. Oh. I, I don't think I've even got the words for it at all. <laughs> but it seems like you needed to show great courage to be that flexible, to do the waiting, to do the listening, to not charge in with a plan. Because I know, you know, when I'm faced with maybe one person sitting in front of me who's been through something that horrific, the safe place that my mind goes to is some kind of protocol, whether that's the EMDR protocol or a trauma-focused CBT protocol. I'm I'm in my textbooks like, right, session two, I'm going to do this. And of course, that's not what they need. We couldn't do that. Yeah, that's never the right way.
1: And it was really interesting actually because there was a lot of here's a form, fill in the form like not from us, here's a form, fill in the form. Um, if you come on this morning at this time to this place, we can assign you with and it was like no no no. Like they have just lost everything and they need to just be like wake up in the morning and understand how to make a cup of tea and sit still for three minutes. Mm. I mean, they had, I think the other thing is, is that, you know, if you, if, if you think about the enormity of the situation for them, there were meetings upon meetings, upon meetings, upon meetings about, you know, um, ensure, like getting get clothes, you know, where to go. Um, uh, you know, okay, their hotel room had damp in it, or the baby was poorly, or, you know, somebody that they needed to see in Morocco couldn't fly over, and how could they get to a computer to help them to change the... Like, you know, it's, it's basic needs that needed to happen, and I think you're right. There was a lot of, you know, the council and... Um, I hate to say it, but cams and the adolescent mental health services, there was a lot of form filling that was kind of being shoved in people's faces. And yes, I put myself on the line because I was kind of like, can't do this. You know, they want to join us. The the sewing group was so beautiful because essentially it was set up by um, a woman who lost her best friend in the tower and they used to meet and they used to sew together. So, she needed to do something Mm. that spoke her language. And I think, you know, look, I'm, I'm a white woman. I'm, you know, I don't speak all the beautiful languages that are spoken at Grenfell. So that was another piece of my work, you know, to have to, so I had to learn so much about the cultures and the different expectations and you know it's not the norm to go and talk to somebody you know it's not that's not the norm in many of these cultures and you know one of the things that we were incredibly gifted in doing is that we built relationships with a theater which was round the corner from Grenfell called the playground theater and um, essentially it was a community theater and we met the most amazing guy who was a musician who was able to bring in circus acts, um, comedians, um, artists. We had some famous actors who came in and met the children and just to give them the space to do kind of, you know, normal, creative, fun, engaging, just take the weight away a little bit mm. and, and to watch. And then by whilst the children were playing and engaging in those activities, I was able with my team to talk to the adults. So you're creating those safe spaces and absolutely, none of it was post-call, but I think the level and the web of confusion that surrounded the situation meant that we were ultimately kind of ingrained in part of that too. Does that yeah. make sense?
0: Yeah, of course. And I think providing that consistency in the you were always there you and your team were there consistently trying to help even if yeah. you didn't always know exactly what that was going to yeah. look like that's an attachment for those people who've lost all of their certainty in the world exactly and I can see how just having the patience to let that grow and develop lets them tell you what they need exactly. and often I think even in, in individual therapy if you get out of the way a little bit, the mind will tell you what it needs to heal. And it's what I'm hearing is that happening on a, on a much bigger scale, on a community scale. Exactly.
1: And it's re- and that's really scary because as you say, you know, we've all gone to university and we've got the textbooks and we understand the process of, I don't know, CBT or, you know, it's a process. This is, this is a different process and I think you're you're spot on it's about knowing that those people are going to be there when they say they're going to be there and if you want to communicate with them verbally or by playing with slime you can on Monday
0: but on Tuesday you might not want to look them in the eye and that's okay Mm. I mean it just sounds so powerful and at the same time I'm thinking to be you at that time must have been really difficult as really, well as probably rewarding really like I
1: I think difficult is probably an understatement and there were, <laughs> like there were many times when I came home and I was like oh my god and I think there was it I I wrote a lot I started to write um I also did things, I think part of the training I remember at Grief Encounter was about kind of letting go of some of the trauma because ultimately intrinsically you soak some of that up Mm. um, and you can have supervision to the hilt. Um, I mean, I think my supervision for it to start with wasn't as intense as it should have been and that's a life lesson and that's a reflection. But I used to do things because I don't know whether, you know, the listeners or, or you've been to kind of around Grenfell, but... It's particularly in the winter, not so much now because the tower is covered, but when you know we were there right at the beginning it's black mm. like it's sooty it's dark, the trees were bare, and I used to come and I used to put the car, like drive the car, find a green space, and walk in green, like even if it was the sun was setting, I just needed to be in green. <laughs> so i think for me the power of nature and the power of outdoor space and just to literally quite physically breathe it out became part of my therapeutic pattern um i i needed to just literally blow it out and i think that you know it's a i talked i wrote a little bit to you about boundaries and i think it's about being incredibly aware of when things just become too much and knowing and knowing that you know we need to to self-care and self-preserve and I am certain you know I don't you know that there are so many individuals if we think about the paramedics the firemen cams the teacher I mean definitely the teachers because I we we ran many sessions with the teachers but the level of kind of like post-traumatic stress is just huge And I imagine there'll be
0: people realising that they're suffering with post-traumatic stress for the next 10, 20, 30 years. Without a shadow of a doubt.
1: Mm.
0: Without a shadow of a doubt. Um,
1: And I think, you know, what what you see in human nature is that people are ultimately altruists. They 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 are givers. And we saw that at Grenfell. I mean, but sometimes to the detriment of their own being. So I was seeing a lot of people who were coming from around the country. I mean, I'm not exaggerating, literally used to kind of get on a train from Manchester or Glasgow because there was a need in them to be there. Or there were, you know, multi-layered variety of reasons. But I was thinking, oh my gosh, you're traveling three and a half hours or seven hours. Who's protecting you? How are you protected? Why do you feel the need to come so
0: far? You know, it's, yeah. So did that become one of your jobs as a psychologist to be the person that says, guys, boundaries mean something? Yeah, for sure. And I spoke a lot to the team about it a lot of the time. Mm.
1: Um, And, you know, you start to notice things and I think you definitely start to notice this in private practice. And I do. And I have I think Grenfell definitely taught me. You know, people start sending emails at you know nine thirty on a Sunday night, or um, a mum's concerned about their child at ten o'clock on a Saturday morning, and you're left with it. And it's like, okay, no, like I need to have this time. This is this is my time with me, or my family, or my sports, or whatever it. Is, or my painting. But it is. I think in private practice, the ban- the you know the lines become blurred so easily and part of that is to do with wanting to develop a practice you know Mm -hmm. the fear of like if I don't reply to this now I'm going to lose this but actually you're not and you you have to remember where your needs lie.
0: Yes and I think the gift of private practice is that you can do stuff that is flexible and responsive and is more what you think people need than what you're told to do by somebody else. And that's amazing. But definitely what comes with that is you have to set those boundaries because nobody's doing that for you. Exactly. And you can't blame an organization either. I know I found that the most difficult bit actually, that I'm very clear when I'm available and when I'm not available And when I'll respond to emails and when I won't and what needs to come to a session versus what I can just reply to quickly. I'm always very clear about that with my clients. But the first time somebody questioned it and I couldn't say, them's the rules. (laughs) I was like, oh, this is this is hard. I've got to own this now. Yeah. Um, And at the same time, I mean, it sounds like you had a team in a way around you. Yeah. But presumably not necessarily a team full of psychologists no and what I miss in private practice is somebody else looking at me and going you do realize that you've got too many cases that are like this or you're hearing too many sad stories at the moment and not getting enough supervision there's no one apart from me to monitor that yeah And I think that that is, that's definitely a life lesson. And I think it's one, you know, when we talked right at
1: the beginning about kind of the importance of reflection, that Mm. is definitely one that I've come back to in practice repeatedly. And I've started to even learn the kind of the cycle of the year Mm. in terms of, you know, it's going to be okay in August. But, you know, come November, December, maybe not so much. Mm -hmm. So, you know, have you booked your supervision in? Are you clear that you've got two days where you can do something just for you? And, you know, that you and that you know that it's all right not to answer the phone on that morning. And, um, you know, you start you start developing really kind of, you know, tactful but successful strategies that ultimately protect you and the needs of those around you. Um, And I think, you know, definitely at Grenfell, there, you know, I was working with psychologists and psychotherapists, but I was also working with people who didn't have the same training as me at all. And their boundaries were kind of, you know, somewhere over the hills. (laughs) (laughs) It's not thought about at all. No, exactly. And then it starts to seep out in, in other ways and other behaviors. Um, and I think that's also why, which is what, you know, you've done is so brilliant. And I've got friends of mine in terms of, I work, I've kind of met like a team of psychologists, both locally, but also online, which now is turning into much more tangible work because we work face to face. But there, we have a human need to be and to talk and to, you know, and to listen and to kind of go back to each other and reflect and say, maybe, maybe you don't need to take that on right now, you know. Mm it's okay to let that one go.
0: Yeah, Um, absolutely. And that's why I'm building peer supervision into the community. Because when you're not getting that from a team, and a lot of us, even in the NHS, actually, it's more common now to be the only psychologist in the team. And I worked in a team like that briefly. And you don't have anybody that you can be like, Oh, you know, I'm thinking that possibly the boundaries being overstepped here because everybody's working a different model and it's your job to highlight that to the team and that, yeah. that felt like a huge weight on my shoulders um, so cool. I just think peer supervision that you get in training and then it's kind of hard to get anywhere else <laughs> is absolutely crucial to our mental well-being absolutely and and you know you cannot give unless
1: your cup is full like you can't you cannot give from an empty cup so um and I think that you know I've developed the most incredible friendships and relationships by psychologists that I've met since I've gone into private practice and and I think you know you learn you learn so much from each other and the your kind of creativity and your you know that that sense in me because you know I love art for example so I'm able to use that so much more than I ever was Mm. but we can you know we can talk about the things and what works successfully and what doesn't and just you know in a calm and it's and it kind of becomes an even more protected space doesn't it I think because you know that those are the meeting times that you're coming together and I'm very strict about it now I'm kind of like yeah this is this is what's happening
0: Yeah, uh, that sounds really powerful and really sensible. And there's so much that I want to ask you about, but I'm aware that you're really busy and that you need to get going.
1: I don't don't, mind. We can talk for another couple of minutes. It's fine.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I do have a selfish question that I ask everybody that I'm interviewing. And that is, if you could get somebody to come on this podcast for me to interview, who would you want to see?
1: Uh, (laughs) Oh, Daniel Seagull. Okay. Um, um I've heard him talk loads um like at conferences and things like that but I think what he's done is so um it's really clever because it's so accessible and he talks in a really kind of engaging and warm and kind way but I want to hear his story about how he got to where he got to um that's what I'm fascinated by really um you know, and people like, um, I don't know, Philippa Perry, who, you know, wrote, you know, she's like, I know that she's she's talked a lot. And and I think the recent book that she's she's written again is you know it's it's engaging and it's, you know, it's it's full of hope, I think, ultimately. Um, and I think that's what that's what kind of people are buy, buying into. Um, But I'm interested in her and kind of her relationship with Grayson and just how that all evolves and how that plays a part in how she is as as a therapist, ultimately.
0: I think that human element is fascinating, isn't it? Because it's really easy to look at some of these people and think they must have had... These amazing ideas from the second that they trained, or yeah. the minute yeah. they started, impostor like, oh, yeah. syndrome again, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. Like I, I read um, the book you wish your parents had read. Yeah, that the
1: book. Yes.
0: And it really helped me, actually, just because of the stage that I'm at with my kids at the moment. It was like it was exactly what I needed at the moment that I needed it. Mm. I feel incredibly warm towards Philippa Perry for that reason. Yes, so do I. Yes. Uh, repair all the way. But I did also have this sense of like, how did you come up with this? Like, how did you do this? Um, and what what enabled you to be able to communicate it in that way? And reach that audience, because it 's not something that I would have thought of doing right. um, and it 's just hearing somebody talk about you know how they thought of that, just like today, for me, hearing how you thought of the interventions that you put in place around grenfell it 's like it starts to make it seem less impossible when you speak to the human about what it felt like to do it and how messy it felt and
1: yeah. And, and, you know, all these things are messy. I mean, you know, I, you know, we haven't talked about it, but um, kind of, you know, organized uh, people coming with incredible ideas, like saying, I want to set up a school. It's like, what? And, <laughs> and uh, actually making these things happen and, and knowing that there there is a huge amount of messiness in these things. Um, and there continues to be and everything is evolving and changing but the gift is is that we can use a lot of our reflective practice to help people to kind of unstick the mess Mm. or the you know the knotted up ball of wool but it's all right for the messy bits to exist too you know and if we were all living in perfection then there would be another sort of mess
0: (laughs) yeah absolutely um yeah I mean that seems like a really great message to finish on I mean I'm definitely going to have to get you back on though um, oh, great. I've got a list of We've stuff. had such a
1: lovely chat haven't we <laughs> and yes. you've made me think about things that I really haven't think, thought about and really haven't talked about for a very long time. So.
0: Good and those messages that <laughs> need to get out there and I reckon a lot of people hearing this are going to feel really inspired and want to connect with you. So your website, and I'm going to put links to everything in the show notes so that people can just click through, um, but your website is hannahabrahams.com, and I believe it's being done up at the moment. Yes, it's, yes. Exciting times. <laughs> um, you are on Instagram as Childhood Minded, I yeah. believe, and Facebook as Hannah Abraham Psychologist. Yeah, I do a bit of Twitter, but not very much. I'm the same. <laughs> I use Twitter to stalk. But not. not <laughs> <laughs> brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining it's us so today. Lovely to talk to you, Rosie. It's been brilliant. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the first ever episodes of the Business of Psychology podcast. If you're listening when this goes live in March 2020, we're crowdfunding for the Do More Than Therapy community. The Do More Than Therapy community is a social enterprise that's all about giving you the skills you need to create big impact and reach more people with your innovations, projects and community interventions. We're offering membership of an incredible community, masterclasses and all the resources you could possibly need to get started or make your business sustainable. And of course, we're also offering this podcast. So if you like what you hear and you want to join or support a movement of psychologists and therapists focused on reaching more people, come over to the crowdfunding page and see what it's all about. All the links you need are in the show notes.